Living Stones is a weekly conversation about living a truly Catholic life. Deacon Harold Burke Sivers and Ken Hellenius help you deepen your relationship with Christ and His Church, discussing practical ways to grow in faith, participate more fully in the liturgy, and practice charity towards all. Hello, and welcome to Living Stones. I am your co-host, Ken Hellenius, sitting in my virtual studios in beautiful South Bend, Indiana, on the campus of the University of Notre Dame. And sitting across from me in his home studio in Portland, Oregon, is the most brilliant and delightful friend anyone could ever ask for. He's a father, a teacher, a preacher, an evangelist, a writer, and all-around good guy. He's my brother from another mother, my co-host and esteemed broadcast partner, the one and only Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. Hello, Deacon. Hey, Ken. Uh, that was a great introduction, man. Uh, that's awesome. I think I'm going to use that instead of my regular introduction. <laughs> well, I will. Uh, I'm happy to let you use it royalty free, friend. That's how much I esteem you. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Hey, so today is a kind of a new feast uh, instituted by Pope Francis, uh, Mary, Mother of the Church. Yes, which is now the Monday after Pentecost Sunday every year now, which is great. I mean, I, you know, the more merry, the better for me. You know? The more the merrier, I, as it were. Yeah. yeah, right. yeah sorry. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> oh, Ken, uh, no, you're yeah, a rare yeah, form yeah. today, I tell you. <laughs> so so we, we, we have this feast because we have Mary, the mother of God, on January 1st of every year. So New Year's Day, right. every year, we, we celebrate the Solemnity of the Blessed Virgin Mary as mother of God, Theotokos. And now we have Mater Ecclesia, the mother of the church. And so and when we talk about mother of the church, what what are we talking about here exactly? Like she's the mother of the church. Yeah, I hear that. And I think a, a number of kind of references to Mary as mother of the church. One is, of course, there's an, an icon, a mosaic of Mary, mother of the church in St. Peter's Square. Uh, up to the right of St. Peter's Basilica, John Paul II, actually, St. John Paul II had this mosaic installed of Mary holding the sweet baby Jesus, um, but it, it's the mother of the church in her title of that. Of course, the mother of the church, Mater Ecclesia Monastery, was the spot on the grounds of the uh, Vatican City in the Vatican Gardens where Pope Emeritus Benedict lived after his retirement. Uh, he lived in this monastery, which was devoted to Mary as the mother of the church, particularly in reference to her role as one who pondered these things in her heart, right? It was a contemplative monastery. And when so when I think of Mary, mother of the church, what I think of is the fact that on the cross, Christ Jesus gave uh, the disciple that he loved, gave him care of Mary and gave Mary the disciple that he loved, who represents us, who represents the entire church, all of the disciples of Christ. We are the disciples that he loves and he gave Mary to care for us and us to care for her. So those are kind of where my mind goes when I think of Mary, mother of the church. Yeah, that's awesome. And um, I think of um, Jesus on the cross and him giving care of his mother to John, right? So right. it's like the handoff, you know? So Jesus gives care of his mother to John because Mary, uh, Mary's the archetype for the church. So right. what J Jesus is also doing is giving care of the church to the apostles, and so just as a mother gives birth to a child, 
Mary is archetype of the church. The church gives birth to its children through the baptismal font, you know? Yes. So, uh, you know, we, we remember Jesus with Nicodemus, uh, Jesus says, unless you are born again of water and the spirit, you know, and Nicodemus misunderstands him and thinks, well, how can someone re-enter the womb? You know, right, right. <laughs> but that's not what he meant. He means the spiritual rebirth. And, and Mary then, uh, just as the church gives birth through, through new life, through the baptismal font, you know, Mary is really, in a sense, our mother, you know, not our physical mother, but our, but our spiritual mother of which the church is, is a type, you know, so it's, it's beautiful. Um, you think of a family that has a mother and a father and we have brothers and sisters. And I just love that image of Mary as mother of the church, because it really makes a, a nice tie in, at least into my heart with her also being a mother, you know, my mother died in 2009. So it says I have like two moms in heaven. Right. This is the way I like to look at that. Yeah. And the way this feast falls here on the day after Pentecost is actually very symbolic as well, right? Because at Pentecost, we mm-hmm. read in the Acts of the Apostles, we read that the apostles were gathered in the upper room with Mary, the mother of Jesus. So she too was present. But this was not the first time that the Holy Spirit descended upon her right? Because the Holy Spirit overshadowed her at the Annunciation. As Gabriel prophesied at the uh, Annunciation, the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary, and the child that was conceived in her womb is therefore holy, the Son of God. And here again, we see the Holy Spirit descending as tongues of flame upon the apostles gathered in the upper room around Mary. And again, the Holy Spirit overshadows, and this is the birthday of the church. So as you've said, we are the spiritual children of Mary, as is, of course, in this case, the apostles are the spiritual children of Mary as well. We consider Pentecost to be the birthday of the church, and Mary is present there, just as Mary was essential in the incarnation itself, so too in the birthing of the church itself. And now, of course, now Pentecost closes the Easter season. And so we uh, are now back into ordinary time. Of course, the next couple Sundays will be have their own special kind of things. We have Trinity yep. Sunday coming up and we have, uh, you know, a number of uh, feasts coming up on these Sundays. But we are in ordinary time again. Ordinary meaning the counted weeks of the year. So it's not ordinary as in plain and boring, but it's ordinary as in ordinal or counted. So we're picking this up with what is this, the 12th, 13th week of ordinary time. Um, I'm going to have to check that. Um, but uh, yeah, so we're, we're back into ordinary time as having completed our 50-day observation, our 50-day celebration of the resurrection itself in, in the Easter season. So welcome back to ordinary time, friends. Yeah, <laughs> I just love that. The church has a, a calendar and there's a flow to the calendar. It all, it all makes sense. Yeah. You know, and we have times for like preparation, like Advent and Lent. And then we have time for celebration, Christmas and Easter. And, and then we have, like you said, ordinary, not like just, oh, just plain old ordinary. You know, there's nothing special about this, you know, but yeah. but more of, like you said, ordinal, counted, you know. And, and as you know, this the years go by, we're counting. You know, we count the years, like our birthday, we get older. You know, we, we look at our children and see, oh my goodness, I can't believe they're this old already. Like, where did the time go? Right. You know, and the same thing with the church. You know, where did the time go? You look back on our relationship with God and how that develops over time. And I think ordinary time is a good time to, now all the celebrations are over, to stop and look at, okay, 
you know, now we're back in ordinary time, but how can I make this ordinary time extraordinary Ooh, as far as yeah. my relationship with God? Yeah. Uh, a few weeks ago, we chatted about Eusebius of Caesarea, the father of church history. And of course, Eusebius mm. is one of those who points to the fact that, and we talked about, you know, BC and AD and BCE and CE, all these sorts <laughs> of letters that we use. Um, in the fullness of time, Christ, our Savior, came and was incarnate of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And all time was building towards him, and all time now flows from him. And so, as you say, even in our calendar, we witness to the flow of time being something that moves forward, that moves towards the culmination. Now we await the second coming of the Lord and the culmination of all history, the recapitulation of all things in Christ. And so this is uh, not ordinary, boring or plain, but as you say, working towards something extraordinary. And that's what history is all about. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we talked about the Eusebius, but now today we're going to talk about another father of the church. Um, and who's that today? Well, we are staying in Palestine, in the in the region of where Christ hallowed by his incarnation. And we're going to talk today about Cyril of Jerusalem. Uh, Cyril was born in 315, uh, around 315, we're not entirely certain, in or around Jerusalem immediately. And so he was born not long after Christianity was recognized as something legal, right? The Edict of Milan comes in 312, 313, and he's born around 315. So he was uh, very early in the uh, age of Christianity, no longer being persecuted by the Roman authorities. He was ordained a deacon by St. Macarius of Jerusalem. Macarius was the patriarch who was with St. Helena when she came to the Holy Land and was sent on mission by her son, Constantine the Emperor, to discover the holy places associated with the Lord's life, death, and resurrection. And so Macarius is, was the one who blessed the people the, uh, when they discovered the true cross. He blessed the people with the cross itself. And this is significant because at the time, that would have been immediately after the Council of Nicaea is when this trip took place with St. Helena. So young Cyril is maybe 10, 11, 12 years old when this is taking place in his hometown of Jerusalem. We know he's present. Uh, he's ordained a deacon by Macarius. Macarius dies in, in um, 337, so we think that uh, young Cyril was probably 21, 22 years old when uh, he's ordained a deacon. And then he was ordained a priest by St. Maximus of Jerusalem, the next bishop after Macarius. And then he succeeded Maximus as the bishop of Jerusalem in the year 348 or so. But much like, you know, last week we were, we were chatting about St. Athanasius, uh, who spent a great portion of his own bishopric in exile from his, his see, Cyril of Jerusalem did as well, because you see Cyril was appointed and ordained a bishop uh, in 348 by another bishop 
who thought that Cyril was an Arian, like the bishop that was ordaining him was himself. So this was Bishop Acacius of Caesarea. He thought that Cyril was also an Arian. We talked, uh, of course, last week extensively about the heresy of Arius uh, and how this was prevalent. And it's the heresy of Arianism that actually was the cause of the Council of Nicaea in 325 to settle that question. But unfortunately, it wasn't something that was settled overnight. Though the creed was written, uh, it still continued to be a very widespread belief, as, uh, as again, we see also in the life of St. Athanasius. So even though Cyril was 37 years as the Bishop of Jerusalem, he spent more than 18 of those years in exile from his see uh, due to these conflicts with the Arians, both those in the church, both bishops, and uh, with emperors that would come in and, and have be sympathetic to the Arian understanding. And again, Arianism is that heresy that claims that there was a time when Christ was not, that God the Father existed alone and then created Christ, so Christ was less than God. Of course, the orthodox view, the, the view that the church truly believes and proclaims, is that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are of one substance. They are of one, one in being, as we used to say, as, you, as we discussed last week, they are of one substance. They are all equally God. Um, and so this is um, the true belief, unlike the Arian belief, which is that Christ was less than God. Cyril, yeah, excellent. Cyril took part in the Second Council of Constantinople in 381, uh, and it was at that council they, they actually wrote a letter to the Roman pontiff, to the pope, in which in that letter they extolled the virtues and the orthodoxy of Cyril in this letter. So the council that gave us what we now know of as the, the creed that we recite on Sundays, the Nicene-Constantinopolitan creed, that council actually also wrote a letter praising Cyril's orthodoxy, praising him as being a true teacher. And they also wrote um, very favorably about the effectiveness of his pastoral role as bishop. So he wasn't just a great teacher, but he was also a loving pastor of the, the people of Jerusalem. And that's really what you want in a bishop, right? We, uh, in our own day and age, gosh, we would love to be able to proclaim that every bishop is, you know, rock solid, preaching the gospel in and out of season, you know, as well as being a fantastic shepherd. Unfortunately, there are sheeps and wolves, right? I'm not here to name names, but let's just say that there are, there are bishops <laughs> that are fantastic that I, that when, when they read or when they speak and write, I love reading what they have to say. And those are the ones that, that we want to be counted as saints, right? So... Cyril yeah, died. we're blessed to have two of those in our diocese. Oh, each of our respective are. dioceses, absolutely. Bishop Kevin Rhodes here in uh, Fort Wayne, South Bend, and of course the great Archbishop Alexander Sample in Portland. Fantastic uh, teachers and pastoral leaders of the of the church there in Western Oregon and here in you know Northern Indiana. Just we're we're really blessed to to have such great and friendly shepherds, right? Uh, as a matter of fact, just a few weeks ago here on campus, we had Bishop Rhodes who preached at our uh, Evangelium Vitae Mass. And golly, listening to him preach is a joy because you know you're hearing a true successor of the apostles. That's that, that's so inspiring to be able to, uh, to, to go to Mass and hear fantastic preaching that leads you to a deeper relationship with Christ. Love it. Yeah, absolutely. 
You know, and Cyril of Jerusalem, um, in the uh, Liturgy of the Hours, the Divine Office, he doesn't have too many writings in there. Because, you know, in, in Matins or um, Office of Readings, the second reading is typically from Father of the Church or from some other kind of document like that, the uh, Jerusalem Catechesis or something like that. So Cyril doesn't have a ton of stuff in here. Uh, he has one section of a, a catechetical instruction that he wrote on his feast day, which is March 18th. Uh, so he so he has something there. And it, there's, I think, a couple other places where he has something, but there's not there's not a ton from him in there. But what he has is excellent. Yeah. So he was a like you said, he's a very very good teacher. Yeah, he is particularly noted for a series of what are called the catechetical lectures or the uh, kind of teaching to people who were preparing for baptism and who were newly ordained. The catechetical lectures, 24 of which are preserved, uh, they continue to be very inspiring today. Uh, the first 18 of these are addressed to catechumens and candidates for what was called illumination or baptism. Uh, now, these were delivered in the Basilica, what we now know of as the Basilica of the Holy Sepulchre. Uh, a little moment, uh, let me take a moment to kind of chat about that, though, because remember, Cyril is born in 315. He's there when Patriarch Macarius with St. Helena discovers the site of the tomb of the Lord and the site of Calvary. And that is possible. That took place in the mid 300s, mid third century or fourth century, because what had happened was that the Roman emperor, not long after the revolt in Jerusalem in AD 70, he actually had the entire area of Jerusalem basically raised, tore down all the buildings, and filled in the, the valleys with dirt and covered them over and built a brand new city called Aeolina Capitolina, um, which basically... Uh, over the site where the crucifixion and the resurrection took place, he built a temple to Juno. But he did so by burying all of the sites of the Christian sites. That ended up being an incredible blessing in disguise for the church. Because when Helena comes uh, in the mid-4th century, after Constantine has made Christianity legal, all she had to do was tear down the temple of Juno and dig. And when they were digging, they discovered a tomb cut in the rock that had been filled in with dirt. And they discovered the hill underneath this dirt that had been kind of piled on top of it uh, that was the site of Calvary, the site of the crucifixion of the Lord. And so in trying to obliterate the memory of Christianity, it turns out the Roman emperors of the late first and early second century, all they did was preserve it for us. So jokes on them ultimately, right? <laughs> And, the, you know, when I was in the Holy Land, I don't know if you heard a little bit of the legend of how uh, they found the true cross. I, I've heard the story yeah. a little bit, but please. Yeah. So there were a number of crosses that were found during the excavation, and they were trying to find which one was the actual true cross. And so they had some people who were dead, and they laid them on these crosses. And when they laid the one on the cross of Jesus, the, the person came back to life. They said, okay, that's the one. That's the one. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. There's a fantastic image of, of uh, as I mentioned before, St. Macarius of Jerusalem, who was the patriarch at the time, blessing the people with the true relic of the true cross. Now, these days, when we think of the relics of the true cross, we think of, you know, large splinters or maybe even a small splinter. Uh, 
This image, of course, is the cross itself. It's not split into splinters. You know, of course, it's a painting that was done many years later, but the whole idea is that they discovered the actual cross on which Christ was crucified. And this, so, and what ends up happening is Constantine authorizes and builds a kind of two-part memorial churches over these sites. So uh, over the site of the of the tomb of Christ, they build a rotunda, a round church, uh, and with the tomb in the center. And then just across a courtyard from there, they build a basilica over the spot where Calvary was, where the rock of Golgotha uh, upon which Christ was crucified. These days, those two buildings have been combined into one. Uh, And so the current church structure of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre contains both Golgotha and the Tomb of the Resurrection. It's significant here, and I bring this up because Cyril of Jerusalem, the bishop, delivered the catechetical lectures uh, for those who were preparing for baptism. He delivered those in the space around which the crucifixion took place, which was called the martyrium, or the, you know, the spot of martyrdom. And he delivered these during Lent. And in these, this portion of the catechesis, he presents the prerequisites for baptism. He urges the, uh, that the people convert from their pagan morals. And he gives a discourse upon the 10 different truths that are contained within the creed. And so here's a, you know, a little bit from there. He says, Put off, I pray you, fornication and uncleanness, and put on the brightest robe of chastity. This charge I give you before Jesus, the bridegroom of souls, comes in and sees your fashion. A long notice is allowed you. You have 40 days for repentance. You have full opportunity both to put off and wash and then to put on and enter. So he's preparing them in Lent during the 40 days of Lent, preparation for their own baptism. He goes on to say, great is the baptism that lies before you. It's a ransom to captives, a remission of offenses, a death to sin, a new birth of the soul, a garment of light, a holy, indissoluble seal, a chariot to heaven, the delight of paradise, a welcome into the kingdom, the very gift of adoption. I hear Cyril of Jerusalem speaking about the beauty of baptism here. And I mean, how attractive does that sound? Most of us, you know, I was baptized as a child, so I don't remember my own baptism necessarily, but I've seen photos and I've witnessed baptisms of others. Like even just this past, you know, Easter vigil, I, we baptized three people in, in my parish. And what a joyful occasion it is. And to hear Cyril of Jerusalem in 350 proclaiming this truth about baptism, how it is you know, a remission of sin, it's a garment of light, all of these images that we continue to use in our own baptismal imagery, right? We clothe our neophytes in white and we give them the candle, which is truly the light of Christ. I mean, how awesome is it that we proclaim today the same thing that Cyril proclaimed to his, you know, catechumens, his elect in 350 A.D.? Beautiful. And there's another wonderful little connection. You know, we talked about Tay being the Feast of Mary, the mother of the church. And, you know, the image um, that draw my attention that this uh, St. Cyril Jerusalem's writings uh, is a connection from Genesis where the bride comes forth from the side of the bridegroom on the cross, right? And, And, you know, so the church is born from the side of Christ. And so it's like a marriage, 
You know, the, the, the bridegroom, Revelation 19, verse 9, right? Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Well, he writes, with regard to baptism, heralds proclaim the bridegroom's invitation. So Christ's invitation. All mankind is called to the wedding feast, for he is a generous lover. Once the crowd has assembled, the bridegroom decides who will enter the wedding feast. This is a figure for baptism. That's awesome. It's like, oh, wow, man. that's pre- that's pretty cool. Right? Keep this garment unstained until the day of the Lord, is what uh, we, yep. we tell the neophytes as we give them their new white baptismal garments, right? That's right. That's right. Um, Wonderful connection. Oh, it's fantastic. Uh, there's one other thing I want to mention from Cyril. He also uh, the, he gave uh, five lectures that are preserved to this day that are called the mystagogical, uh, mystagogical catechesis. And these were presented to the newly baptized. And what these mystagogy is that portion of unveiling the mystery is kind of what it means. And so they'd already gone through baptism and now they're understanding things in a new light. And this period, particularly after Easter, is this period of mystagogy, is unveiling the mystery, the full meaning of what you just of what just happened to the to the neophytes. And these are considered some of the most essential of his homilies or of his preaching. And these were presented then in the the rotunda around the resurrection, around the very tomb of the Lord. So the group that he had preached to uh, over at the base of Golgotha during Lent have now physically moved to the very space of the resurrection because they themselves were baptized into the death of the Lord that they might be raised with him in baptism to new life. And so to present these in the space around where the resurrection itself takes place is not only physically awesome, but it also helps uh, break open the full meaning of what's taking place. I thoroughly encourage every listener to go and read some of these uh, catechesis by St. Cyril of Jerusalem. He is a, a great teacher of the faith, and what, again, what he wrote in 350 AD remains fresh and inviting and unveiling even to us here, 1,700 years later. It's just fantastic. I, I love it. Oh, that's great. Uh, you know, what a, what a wonderful um, uh, way our church has preserved our history and, and the writings of these uh, great fathers of the church that we can still benefit from today. Absolutely. Well, Deacon, we've run out of time, as is our custom. We get involved in quality conversation about awesome saints and bishops and doctors and fathers and all that good stuff, and we run out of time together. But we do invite you to connect with us on Facebook. Just go to Living Stones Media. You can also download previous episodes of the show and learn about other fathers and doctors of the church by going to materdeiradio.com. But Deacon, until we gather next week when we'll learn about yet another fantastic father and doctor of the church, might we have a blessing. May Almighty God bless you, keep you, and protect you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. We'll see you next week here on Living Stones. You've been listening to Living Stones with Ken Hellenius and Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. Living Stones is produced at the studios of Modern Day Radio in Portland, Oregon. For more information about this show, go to moderndayradio.com. That's M-A-T-E-R-D-E-I radio.com.